Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, a British duo has set out to tackle an enduring Canadian musical question. Why is one of our most successful rock bands of all time been the target of so much criticism? Their doc is called Love to Hate Nickelback. Not Love to Hate Nickelback. Love to Hate Nickelback. And they join me for a behind-the-scenes look. Now, he is one of the world's most noted experts on institutional investors and pension funds. And Keith Ambekshir joins me to crunch the numbers on a report that is propelling the province of Alberta on a plan to leave the Canada Pension Plan and go it alone. The politics may make sense to Premier Daniel Smith, and they're already spending your money, by the way, on an ad campaign to try to sell Albertans on it. But there is a big problem here, apparently. Their numbers just don't add up. Justin Trudeau's former national security advisor joins me to talk about a very tumultuous week in Canada-India relations and takes us behind the scenes on what kind of information would have been needed for the Prime Minister to stand up at the House of Commons on Monday and announce that India is linked to the murder of a Sikh activist and separatist in BC earlier this year. But first, the Ukrainian president made his first in-person visit to this country today since Russia's full-scale invasion of his country more than 18 months ago. Vladimir Zelensky was given a long ovation by MPs before addressing parliamentarians in Ottawa. He thanked Canada for its support, reminding people that Russia still aims to destroy his country and his people. Was his journey a success? We find out. First, we're going to begin in Ottawa, uh, where it was a day of... Good spirits. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made his first stop on his first in-person visit to Canada since Russia's invasion of his country more than 18 months ago now. Zelensky and his wife Olena Zelenska received a long standing ovation, many ovations, as they made their way into the House of Commons in Ottawa today. The Prime Minister spoke first, talking about how Ukrainians and Zelensky have stood up for their country and democracy. But for one year, six months and 29 days, the people of Ukraine have defended their homes, their language, and their freedom to choose their own future. They have fought back with a courage that has inspired the world, and they have been led by President Zelensky, a great champion of democracy. Well, dressed in his now familiar military green, Zelensky then spoke to parliamentarians and many others invited for the occasion, warning that Moscow still seeks to crush Ukraine. He said when Ukraine calls on the world for support, it's not about an ordinary conflict, but saving the lives of millions. Literally, physical salvation, ordinary women and men, children, our families, whole communities, Entire cities, Russia's destruction of Mariupol, of Valnavaka, or Bakhmut, or any other city or village in Ukraine must not go unpunished. President Zelensky speaking uh, to parliamentarians today in Ottawa. The federal government also announced more support for Ukraine, more sanctions against Russia, and a trade deal signed by the two leaders. The visit comes, of course, after the Ukrainian president made stops in New York for the UN General Assembly and in Washington, where he met with President Biden. The U.S. uh, yesterday announced it would send an additional security assistance package uh, valued at up to $325 million U.S. But this visit wasn't so much about dollars and cents, really. It was about ensuring that key allies such as the U.S. and Canada remain fully committed to Ukraine's fight. Joining me now with more on this is Jane Bolden, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, research fellow at the Queen's University Centre for International and Defence Policy. Jane, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. 
Well, if President Zelensky was looking for reassurance in Canada today uh, in the House of Commons, he certainly found it. I think that's right. Very, very strong support. Um, I'm not sure he could have asked for anything more than the kind of day he had in Ottawa today in terms of not just in Parliament, but outside Parliament as well. Yeah. What did you make of his of his address? Because there was a lot of, I mean, it was very tailored to Canada, right? There was mention of Edmonton, uh, yeah. the Holodomar uh, monument as well. I mean, he put, I, I, I thought it was a really strong, strong address. I agree. I thought it was too. And as you say, very tailored to Canada. A lot of recognition there of the importance of the Ukrainian population in Canada. And that continued tonight um, in his meetings in Toronto with um, a lot of Ukrainian uh, members of the population there um, and Ukrainian business as well. But I think that, you know, the speech really reflected the degree to which Ukraine appreciates Canada's support. And he made a direct linkage between that and the Ukrainian population within Canada itself. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk a bit about some of the announcements that were made, but but this felt like, um, you know, sometimes support for a war such as Ukraine, what is U- what Ukraine is fighting right now, is beyond just military and diplomatic support. It's also about populations, and certainly Canada has a big role in that. That's right, and I think one of the things we saw today in terms of the package of support that the government was announcing was precisely that mix, not just military, but economic, social support for um, mental health treatment across you know different ranges of groups within Ukraine, thinking ahead to rebuilding society over the longer term. When you looked at, uh, I mean, there was all party support. There's very little talk about, I mean, even in the U.S., it comes and goes as to what kind of support uh, House Republicans have for the funding of this war. Clearly, we're in the middle of an affordability crisis. There's lots of things that parliamentarians could be talking about in terms of where money should go. But it feels like um, support for the war in Ukraine is, is still universal within the House of Commons. We didn't hear much in the way of dissent today. That's right. It, it does seem pretty unequivocal support across the board. Um, I think that reflects what is the case in the Canadian population broadly as well. And there is a bit of a contrast there to the United States, although it's difficult to be to make a direct comparison because some of the issues associated with um, people coming forward within the Republican Party saying they're not supporting Ukraine, there is some nuance there in that they are playing a budget game They're um, not necessarily saying we don't support Ukraine, but what they are doing is raising questions from a budgetary perspective that matters internally within the negotiations in the Republican Party about how they deal with this upcoming budget. But if you're Ukraine and if you're Volodymyr Zelensky, right, it doesn't, the nuances doesn't matter. You need a full on support. And I think he was getting that today in Canada. Yeah, I mean, you get the impression watching him, although he certainly didn't show it. And there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of love in the House of Commons today for Vladimir yeah. Zelensky and his wife. But this is an important trip for him because I think this war is heading into a stage where it's inevitable that people start to look away. And I think his his mission on this journey to the U.S. and Canada was really to make sure that our eyes are still firmly fixed on Kyiv. That's right, and I think that's you know it, it wasn't just to express gratitude. Um, although that is a main goal of, um, we certainly saw that in his speech today, a main goal of his trip to both Canada and the U.S., 
but in expressing that gratitude, he's trying to make that linkage. Remember, you, you know, you're still with us. We want you to be with us. We need you to be with us. And I think you're right that the length of time the war has gone on and the extent to which there hasn't been major shifts um, in the, on the battlefield, but also even in the broader, you know, even an attack like in the last 24 hours on the naval headquarters in Crimea isn't likely to change the course of the war. And so it leads to a waning of support, and you start to see that in states, um, including neighboring states like Poland, right, who right. are starting to prioritize their own domestic interests over um, support for Ukraine. In, uh, I suppose there are things that Vladimir Zelensky could have said that would have been slightly more critical um, of, of expectations. I mean, there, he has been more blunt in the past about what he hasn't received uh, for right. this war effort. I and mean, he very much didn't talk about that, at least not in Ottawa today. I'm not sure, quite sure. I haven't been, had a chance to see all of what he said in Toronto, but I imagine it was pretty much from the same songbook. Um, I, I didn't see all of it, but I saw most of it, and it was... Um, there was a little bit more in his visit to Washington about, you know, specifics about what, what they would like and, and what hasn't necessarily been forthcoming. But um, in Canada today, there, there wasn't much of that. Um, the, part of that equation is that Canada's capacity to give on the military front um, is limited in the sense that we're not in a position to give some of the um, higher-end, high-tech weapons that you would get from the United States, like some of the longer-range missiles, that might, in fact, help turn the tide. Jane, though, when we look at what's happening with this conflict, because the one thing that I noticed that was not talked about today, not even a hint of it, was peace. And I realize there can't be peace with how the war is unfolding right now. Uh, but this one, I mean, I spent some time in eastern Ukraine back in 2014 when that conflict very much froze and those borders froze. And it feels like we're heading, unfortunately, towards something similar, and that's going to be difficult for everyone involved. Yeah, there is a sense of a stalemate, or as you say, a freezing of the conflict at this point, um, especially as we enter into another winter. Um, and that's when things tend to quiet down because of the constraints of weather. But it also gives both sides a chance which this isn't necessarily a good thing from Ukrainian perspective because it gives both sides, including Russia, the chance to restock um, and get ready for the next round in the spring. And so when you're in that cycle of um, essentially a war of attrition, and I would add to that a war of ammunition, mm -hmm. it is hard to see um, how it unfreezes at a certain point. There is a peace plan, um, there are various peace plans that have been out there and floated. Ukraine has a 10-point peace plan that's been um, out there for a while. But these two sides are so fundamentally um, divergent on their goals that there really is, like, there really is nothing to negotiate at this point. Um, and so we are, as you were saying earlier, looking at um, the elements of a frozen conflict here. I know the Americans have provided some more long-range missiles, or longer-range missiles, I should say. I mean, it looks like some of the weaponry that a lot of allies were not really willing to give Ukraine, uh, you know, in the, a, year, a year ago, is now being provided. Do you think that will make any difference, or is it just more ammunition? Some, um, there's some possibility that some of those weapons will make a difference, but 
you need them in quantity um, in order to make that raise that likelihood um, to make it more likely they're going to make make a difference. We do see a kind of sliding of the willingness of um, the United States and others to provide, as you say, weapon systems they weren't willing to provide before, not because they were holding back out of any sense of um, um, not wanting to fully support Ukraine, but they were holding back because of early fears about escalation on the part Mm -hmm. of Russia. And Russia was sending those signals. You know, if you go too far in terms of the amount of support you give Ukraine, we're going to um, escalate the war. And, you know, people will remember that in that early phase, uh, Putin didn't hold back from threatening nuclear weapons. But over time, we've, you know, that threat seems to have eased a little. There's less sense that Putin might make a sudden or irrational decision in a given moment. And so we do start to see some of those higher-end, more offensive-oriented weapons as distinct from weapons that will support holding your position. Um, So it's a possibility that some of that might change. I think one of the things people hope for is a breakthrough in a given area. It it doesn't have to be all along the front. You just need one opening to push through. Um, And um, that could happen, if it's going to happen... I, my bet would be that it'll happen very quickly and out of the, not out of the blue, but all of a sudden. Um, and so it's hard to predict that. But we haven't seen it yet. And I know a lot of people were hoping that something like that would happen this past summer. Yeah, it was certainly uh, well. So much happened this past summer with with uh, with the Wagner Group and then and then Putin. Right. And I mean, it's just been. Yeah. You, you're right. You never know. Uh, this, you know, this war may feel like it's static, but there's all kinds of things going around on around it that can change very quickly. Uh, Jane Bolden, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. He said the meaning of this word is don't give up, don't give up, stay strong against all odds and so shall it be are you in nata canada are you in nata ukraine slava ukraine yeah that was president vladimir zelensky addressing parliament in ottawa today and there were a lot of uh, personal moments i mean obviously it was about politics and the war and so on but there were a lot of personal moments in his address and that was one of them he had met earlier in the day with governor general mary simon and she had shared in an message of inspiration with him uh, the word ayunata as he repeated it there um it uh, refers to the inuit concept of uh, countless times she's referred to it countless times since she took the position in 2021 it's a message of inspiration that she shared with the President Zelensky, and he repeated it today. Uh, President Zelensky also thanked Justin Trudeau for giving him three days with his wife, Olena. It is their first three days with each other since the beginning of the war uh, 19 months ago. And he also thanked Canada on a very personal level for offering and providing refuge for so many Ukrainians who fled uh, their homeland to come here, uh, perhaps just temporarily, but to come here seeking shelter from the violence, 170,000 and more at this point. Here is uh, Vladimir Zelensky again. And most of all, I would like to thank you, Canada, for the purely human thing, for making Ukrainians feel at home when they are here in Canada. Thank you. 
Well, one of those who was on hand to hear those words, who's found home in Canada, is Olga Yavalenko. Uh, she left Ukraine in February of 2022, I believe, with only what she could fit in her car with her two kids, crossing into Hungary before making her way to Warsaw to join another daughter living near Ottawa. She's in Canada now. She was in Ottawa today to listen to President Zelensky speak, and she joins me now. Olga, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um. It's my honor to be present here on this program and also to share with you my experience today with the President Solansky visit to Ottawa. I saw a picture of you uh, with your flag and it looked like you were having um, a very good day. Uh, It was amazing. You know, I'm so grateful to my employer letting me go today to be a part of this. I think it's a historical, uh, let's say, event. And it's it's just not a regular day in my life and probably not a regular day for uh, the whole bunch of people that were present today on that street uh, around on a a parliament hill who were there to support President Zelensky and to, let's say, show gratitude to what what happened to us here in Canada and what he is doing there in Ukraine for the whole Ukrainian people. Yeah, I, I've often heard him speak Ukrainian. Again, today he spoke nothing but English. What did you think of his speech? Um, actually, I had no chance to to listen to his speech from the right. first from the first word to the last one. Uh, I heard a lot of, uh, let's say, impressions uh, about that speech from different people who were present in, in Parliament because they mm-hmm. went out from from that um, event and, and, and they shared their, their, let's say, emotions and experience. I am um, very proud that my president can uh, address to a parliament on, on the language they speak. I think it's a, it's a great... It's a big deal from a person to know the language and and to be able to speak English directly and not using the translation. And I think he's just great because of that. How are things in Canada? I know that it was a very, uh, like so many, like so many, your departure from Ukraine was very quick with just what you could bring with you and very uncertain, I think. How how is life going for you and your children? Uh, Pardon me? How is life going for you and your children in Canada now? How, how has it been the last, almost well, 18 months now? Uh, it's a very interesting question. I'm always, you know, it makes me think of that. I have no just a regular answer. I can only say that I am I am blessed to, to make this choice to come to Canada because uh, this is, I think, the most friendly society here, and people are so nice to us, and they help a lot. They give them the immense support. Uh, my kids are very happy here. Um, I think they adjusted very well, and probably this is because they are kids, and it's okay for them. It's uh, mostly like an adventure, another one in their life. Uh, for me personally, I can say that it's a difficult, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, I cannot deny that. Uh, no matter, everybody is very supportive. But still, you know, to restart your life when you never asked for that and when you have your good life back there in Ukraine, you know, everything was set up. So you need to start from the very beginning. And it's it's not... Uh, a regular thing. Uh, as you see, I have a bit of English. 
Yes. I traveled around the world. I know how to adjust. I uh, re- let's say I changed the place of living several times, and I have a good example of my parents. So it's even even though I have, I I think it's uh, a a challenge. It's a challenge, but um, I think it's a it's a less that I can do for my kids and for people in Ukraine to be to adjust here and to let's say find a way how to help them because uh, those are in trenches you know and those are under bombs and uh, let's say yesterday the city I, I'm from was bombed and and it was I just cannot imagine how people are feeling over there so I have nothing to complain about no this I is, was I, yeah what was I was curious to know seeing President Zelensky being surrounded by so many other members of the Ukrainian community here today, probably others who, like you, are are here recently, whether it made you homesick at all. Mm, could you please... Uh, whether whether seeing President Zelensky today, being around so many other Ukrainian people of Ukrainian descent, probably people who've also been here for not very long like you, whether it made you homesick, whether it made you miss home today. Um, yeah, but you know, mostly people were saying that when they were interviewed that they felt that he is here, it's like a piece of home. Um, probably I can say that so, uh, like I can say this too, but for me, his visit and he himself, uh, it's like, you know, all my values that is very important for me in one person he defends all that and i it's a very important thing that he is coming to different countries he came to canada uh he is grateful for all of us and it's like i mean he's the one who can say from all of us how grateful we are to this country and to recognize the contribution that Canada does in this challenge for not only for Ukraine. I mean, this is for the whole democratic world, uh, world as, as I understand this. So being here today for uh, like his presence here uh, changed a lot for me. And it's like a, a huge support for me to continue uh, facing this challenge, uh, giving the best I can to my kids, uh, building up their confidence and uh, their, let's say, resilience and uh, bringing them as new Ukrainians. Maybe for one day they will go back to Ukraine and they will, let's say, give back what we receive in here and will multiply the good that happened to us. Well, Olga, your English is phenomenal, by the way, and I thank you so I'm really glad you got a chance to go do this today, and thank you so much for sharing what it was like with me tonight. I, I very much appreciate it, and good luck to you and the family. Thank you so much for inviting me, and it's a great deal for us that you still see us, uh, that you consider that Ukrainians are here in, in Canada. We actually really want to contribute to the society, and for you to feel that we are really grateful for the whole support you're doing. And those journalists that that highlight what's going on, they are also heroes for us. Thank you very much. Olga, good night. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>
exceptional, a hard worker and a good human being. His death is senseless and heartbreaking. He simply went to work today and he was killed doing his duty and keeping his community safe. That was Ridge Meadow RCMP Superintendent Wendy Meehat late today speaking about the death in the line of duty this morning of Constable Rick O'Brien. The decorated seven-year member of the force uh, was shot and killed during a confrontation while executing a search warrant in Coquitlam, B.C., uh, part of what police are calling a long-term investigation. Coquitlam, of course, just east of Vancouver. It has been just a really tragic day as this has unfolded. And, and again, this has happened too often, right? We've talked about this on the show too often now. RCMP Deputy Commissioner Dwayne McDonald says two other officers were injured in the incident. Uh, one has been treated for their minor injuries and is with their family tonight. The other is still in hospital with non-life-threatening injuries and has family and friends with them. The suspect in this case case was also shot and is in hospital tonight with non-life-threatening injuries. The deputy commissioner says the death of 51-year-old Constable O'Brien, a husband and father, has gutted the Mounties, and it comes just a little over 11 months after the death of RCMP Constable Shailene Yang in Burnaby, B.C. To say that today has been a struggle is an understatement. Our, our, our RCMP family is once again gutted. We are just days away from the BC Law Enforcement Memorial in Victoria where we honour our fallen. And we are just approaching the one-year anniversary of the murder of Constable Yang in Burnaby. We're still healing from that tragic loss, and yet here we are again. With more on this now is Bruce Pitt-Payne. He's a retired RCMP major crime investigator and now a consultant. Bruce, thank you tonight. You're very welcome, Ben. You know, I feel like we've talked about this way too often uh, on this show already in the past 18 months. I mean, what another, another day of just, it's kind of hard to put into words. It, it is. And uh, the CEO of the division, Dwayne McDonald, put it best. It, it, it's gutting. It is sucking the wind out of members that are working on the job still, family members, friends, and retired members like myself. Uh, as soon as I heard the news, it literally sucked the wind out of me and just changed the day. Yeah, I, we don't know much around the circumstances about what happened. I know there are investigations underway, perhaps all of that. It doesn't really matter right now. But, you know, this again, as as was mentioned, you know, uh, coming up next month on October 18th, it'll be a year since Constable Shailen Yang uh, was killed in the line, line of duty as well. Um, yeah. This has been a really tough time for RCMP in BC and right across the country. It it has, and it's police, you're right, right across the country, not just the RCMP. I don't know if statistics are showing that there is an uptick in the number of police officers being killed, uh, and, and I'm not saying the on-duty deaths where they are intentionally uh, murdered. <laughs> there's no other word for it. But there, even if there's a perception of it, it, it's just not healthy at this point, is it? It's uh, it's something that has to be changed. Yeah, I, I mean, I think on average, I, I remember talking about this, uh, you know, it's been too, perhaps a year, too, too many, but the past few years, obviously, there's been this this jump. What do you think is happening out there? Because it's hard for uh, for civilians, I think, to understand. We understand how dangerous policing is and how there is no such thing as a routine call. I've been told that many, 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 many times. But it feels like the, the incidents now, the, the violence with which police are met at times is is new and disturbing. Well, again, there's, there's violence even back in my day um, mm -hmm. and in the, the groups of police officers. And I sort of clumped them into every 25 year, which is the average 
service of a, of a member. Um, you can go back three to four generations and there was still violence. Um, it's just that I think that right now, and I'm guessing uh, with the social media and the speed of which the information gets out and the amount of the information that comes out on each incident, um, I think that that is affecting how we perceive it as well. So it, it's doubly gutting. Uh, that's not a minimization. I'm saying it's a, it just makes it all that much more worse. But I can't quote you numbers. Uh, I'm sure somebody is doing studies um, on it. it. It just could be a spat of, uh, you know, just clumps as opposed to spread out over a while. I think we'll have to see. Either way, I sure hope people are taking this seriously. Yeah. I, I spoke with Winnipeg's chief of police uh, earlier this week because there was a conference going on in Edmonton about safe cities. He's, of course, the president yeah. of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. And we were talking about morale. You know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of challenges police are facing on the streets these days, uh, multiple challenges. And this, you know, these these deaths that, that, are, that are happening, I can't even imagine what it does. And you mentioned it earlier. I can't even imagine what it does to morale for each and every officer who gets up in the morning to go to work it it's scarring um you know the bad part about that is is the logical part where uh, the members don't even get a chance to grieve before they're investigating this or going to their next call they they can't just give up and say we're taking a day off and that's the probably what they need but it's a job where they're never going to get that that's just i guess the cards that they drew when they chose to be um the heroes that they are, frankly. Um, As far as morale goes, you know, I guess when members have died in the past, when I've been working and such, um, I tried to make it better by saying, maybe we can be like that person. Maybe we can look at all the great qualities. And and when looking over, over Rick's service, it was short, but my God, it was full. It was. He, he received commendations, praise. Uh, I'm hoping that the members can can take that and actually become more resilient with it when they look up to such an honorable, heroic human being. Uh, Bruce, what can we do? What can the public do? What can the politicians do? Because we hear the outpouring of, of sympathy and, and grief, but, but what can we do? What should we be doing now? to make sure, I mean, I know this can be, uh, you know, a contentious issue at times, but it feels like, what can we do to, to help? Or what can we do to support? I, I can't get into the politics meeting. I don't really have an answer on that. Uh, to me, that's almost the easy part. Um, enact some laws that will save officers' lives. Let's take a look at this and see what can be done. Um, Here's, here's the part that has always bothered me as a police officer. There will always be people that hate you. That's the nature of the job, but it isn't the majority. There will always be people that love you, but it might not be the majority. But I'm going to ask everybody in Canada that is sitting on the fence that never really knows do I love the police or hate them. How about you choose the love? Go up, please make a difference and let your local police know how much you care because they go to work sometimes wondering. And, and I think that that would make the best statement ever.
Yeah, especially tonight, especially tonight yeah. and this weekend, because it's going to be a tough oh, one. Yeah. Bruce, uh, again, I, I thank you so much. I appreciate it. And my again, my condolences to former, current, everyone, RCMP yeah. officers in BC, across the country, and all other police officers tonight. I know it's going to be another tough weekend. They, they need that. And thank you so much, Ben. You know who's not going to say they had a great summer? Uh, Justin Trudeau, because he's had a bit of a rough one. And it continued this week after he got up in the House of Commons and announced that that uh, there was intelligence suggesting, at least, credible allegations, he called them, uh, that New Delhi was involved in the killing of a Sikh activist, Hardeep Singh Nijar, uh, in BC back in June. Now, Bloomberg is reporting tonight that Canadian officials have sh- shared evidence with India's government, including communications and phone numbers that they believe link Indian agents with the murder of Nijar um, before the Prime Minister went public with those allegations on Monday. Um, now, the Prime Minister says he is working with, that Canada is working with its partners, and what they're asking for for India is to commit to working with Canada to investigate the allegations. Canada has shared the credible allegations uh, that I talked about on Monday with India. We did that many weeks ago, and we are there to work constructively uh, with India. And we hope that they uh, engage with us so that we can get to the bottom of this very serious matter. Meantime, uh, Washington, you know, allies have been a little lukewarm on this one. Washington has been a bit more vocal in the past few days. Uh, A White House official denouncing what he describes as efforts by some media outlets to drive a wedge between our two countries over India. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said yesterday that Washington is deeply concerned about Canada's allegations. There's not some special exemption you get for actions like this, regardless of the country, we will stand up and defend our basic principles. And we will also consult closely with allies like Canada uh, as they pursue their law enforcement and diplomatic process. It has been, the reaction from India has been quick and angry. Tensions between the two countries have deteriorated, at least relations have deteriorated since Monday. Um, India has halted all visa services for Canadians uh, since. There's been a tit-for-tat expulsion of of two uh, security officials or diplomatic officials from the two countries. And uh, lots of words back and forth. On Thursday in New Delhi, Indian External Affairs Ministry spokesperson Arindam Bagchi accused Canada of harboring terrorists. We would expect uh, better steps by the Canadian authorities on our very significant concerns about terrorism, about security of our diplomats, of Indian community, and overall anti-India activities that are being um, operated or given a safe haven in Canada. Well, we wanted to find out more about exactly what would have happened on Monday and how it played out, how much the government would have thought about the consequences of this. And certainly, uh, if these allegations proved to be true and the intelligence was valid, which it appears to be, uh, this is a really tough one for Canada and allies. So joining me now is Vincent Rigby. He knows this inside out. He served as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's National Security Advisor from 2020 to 2021. He's now a professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University in Montreal. And he joins me now. Vincent, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. There's been an awful lot of speculation uh, this week, obviously, about what it would take for a prime minister to step up in the House of Commons and make that kind of an announcement uh, to the world, because clearly it sent shockwaves uh, everywhere. And the reaction to it from New Delhi has been uh, pretty vociferous. Uh, Take me behind the scenes a bit. Under what circumstances would a prime minister get up and, and make these allegations publicly? Well, I think first and foremost, there has to be some pretty solid intelligence. And 
I think that's part of the debate right now. How much intelligence did the government actually have? In what form did it come? Um, hopefully more than just hearsay. And I know my former colleagues in the security and intelligence community in Canada, uh, I can guarantee you it was more than just hearsay. We're starting to see some stuff coming out now that would indicate that uh, they had a good intelligence base. It would appear from some CBC reporting that we've got some signals intelligence, including some conversations between Indian officials, including Indian diplomats in Ottawa, some human intelligence, so some human sources, and possibly some intelligence from another Five Eyes ally, which I would take to mean probably the United States or maybe the UK. So uh, that's the how they got the intelligence. That's how they got this information. What it actually said, we don't know. And we may never know. It's not the kind of stuff that you put out in a news release. Uh, here's a transcript of a discussion that happened between two Indian diplomats late one night uh, down the street in, in Ottawa. Uh, this stuff was collected, obviously, in a clandestine fashion, and they don't want to reveal sources who they've been trailing or or um, listening to. So they've got to be very, very careful. But again, even if we don't have details on exactly what they said, I think just the fact that they've got these forms of intelligence would suggest that it's a pretty solid base and they've got something to act on. Is it a smoking gun in the sense of one person saying to another, we are going to kill XX individual? I don't know. Um, I, I like to say, and I used to say when I was in the job with National Security Intelligence Advisor, it's pretty rare that you get a smoking gun in the intelligence world, something just black and white, there it is, we can act on that. Uh, maybe they got it this time, but whatever they got, clearly it was enough for the Prime Minister to stand up and make this statement. And I cannot believe the Prime Minister would have stood up in the House of Commons and really turned the world upside down, like quite, quite literally, everybody's talking about this without having some pretty solid evidence. Yeah, how much of that would have the way that it was communicated? Because I know that's always come up in the past. I mean, this, as you pointed out, in front of committee and in interviews in the past. I mean, the amount of intelligence that pours across the desks of those involved is is huge. Uh, but the way it's communicated is also very important. What did you make of the way it was communicated? Because clearly, it sent a shockwave, and that's not always what you're trying to do in the world of diplomacy and intelligence. We have relationships with Indian intelligence, with the Indian government, maybe not a very good one right now, but still there is sort of a, there is a protocol when it comes to this kind of stuff. No, absolutely. And it's a really, really good point. I mean, I guess a, a couple of things. I was quite taken by the story in the Globe and Mail where Bob Fife and Stephen Chase, the, the reporters who had broken all the stuff about foreign interference from China, uh, in Canada and the electoral process, uh, but they had said they actually had the story. Ahead mm -hmm. And they were about to break it. And uh, they went to PMO and said, okay, we're going to break this news story. So I immediately thought, well, that's interesting that they go to PMO and say, we've got the story, we've got the inside dope. And then the next day, the prime minister stands up in the House of Commons. So I immediately started to think, I wonder if the government was ready to actually announce this when they did. Uh, maybe they were planning to announce it, but it was going to be a little bit later. But when Fife and Chase come out and they say, we got something, it, it reminded me of Chinese foreign interference and the government's response is, oh no, not again. We're gonna be accused of responding to allegations in the Globe and Mail. We're gonna be seen as behind the power curve, not getting on top of the story. So I, I, I wonder about that. And then the second point is, the other thing that made me think about it was just the way it's phrased, the statement. If you look very carefully at the PM statement, 
And it's about credible allegations. And I thought allegations, that's an interesting word to use. It wasn't credible intelligence, it was credible allegations. So I don't know what that means. And then it was credible allegations potentially, underlined potentially, linking Indian agents to this murder. And I thought, well, that's something you would think um, on lo one level coming out publicly, you'd say that we have insurmountable or not insurmountable, but, but incontrovertible evidence not potentially, but incontrovertible evidence linking the Indians to this murder. It was very carefully phrased. It was caveated. It was nuanced. So it again, that made me think, hmm, they're coming out maybe a little bit earlier than they wanted to. Maybe they wanted to do a little bit more work. Maybe they had a little bit more work to do with allies. Maybe a little bit more work to do with the Indians. I, I don't know. So I'm just speculating and, 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 and talking it through. But, you know, you ask the question, what goes into this? I have no doubt that the, the security intelligence community gave their best possible advice in terms of when to go out and how to go out. But when the government gets its hand forced a little bit, especially after all the stuff with foreign interference, uh, I don't know. It's a bit of a question mark. Yeah, we had Bob Fife on the show, actually, the other night, who and he explained exactly what they did. They called the PMO on Sunday and said, we have this story. And they said, uh, well, can you wait a week? And uh, he said, well, we can wait 24 hours. And that was well, there you go. That's that's there, his there that's go. that's how he tells it. And clearly, I mean, absolutely, given this, the events of the last six months, it feels like this was really part of a continuum in terms of the decision making, both as a political calculation, but the idea of not being caught flat footed again on this one. Yes, I think there's a lot to that. And I think that uh, you look back over the last year or so, uh, going back to early 2022, you've got the Freedom Convoy and everything that happened there. And the government scene has been very much in an ad hoc responsive mode and perhaps not handling it as well as they could have. And it had a national security component to it. Then you had Chinese foreign interference. And now you've got this. So there was probably a little bit of, can't believe this, once again, uh, we've got to we've got to get ahead of the power curve on this, and we've got to 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 look a little bit better. So I, I think there may have been something to to, to that, and, and far better for the prime minister to get out and be proactive than a big headline in the Globe and Mail, and you have um, Mr. Polyev standing up and, and and accusing the prime minister of sitting on this, not doing anything about it, uh, a threat to our our sovereignty, a movie. Mm -hmm out on our territory, all of that stuff. So I understand why it had to go out. And I, I understand that sooner or later, I think it would have come out. It just it just was perhaps a little bit sooner than they, than they wanted. Vincent Rigby is with us this half hour. He served as uh, Justin Trudeau's national security advisor uh, a few years back. He's now a professor at the Max School, uh, Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. We're talking, of course, about all that's happened between Canada and India this week. Uh, when we come back, a bit more just about the broader picture here, because uh, back in front of MPs in June, uh, Vincent said, don't wait for a crisis to happen to fix intelligence of the way it's disseminated. Are we watching that crisis unfold? That's next. I mean, was this a surprise? Because we've talked a lot about China interference. We we are obviously very concerned about Russia's interference over the years. We've talked about Iran's interference. We have occasionally talked about India's uh, work on Canadian soil when it comes to issues of domestic concern to them, certainly Sikh separatism being one of them. Was it sort of common knowledge that, that Indian intelligence may be up to stuff in this country? I think it was pretty common knowledge that the Indians were not happy with Canada. <laughs> it was common knowledge because they told us and they said it quite publicly where they were not happy with Canada and the way that uh, we were dealing with what they seem to think was widespread cases of Sikh extremism and Sikh terrorism in Canada. 
And so um, we'd had in Canadian circles, numerous interactions with Canadian Sikhs, um, basically saying that the Indian government is very aggressive on our soil. The Indian government um, is, you know, can be clandestine and coercive sometimes in some of their dealings with it. So yes, it was out there. That's been publicly stated. It's no no great secret. So um, foreign interference and and some meddling, ap- absolutely. It was a surprise though, in the sense that this took it to another level. Mm-hmm. When I when I saw the news story break back in June that someone had been murdered. And I heard his background and what have you. I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's a, a connection there with the Indians, uh, with the Indian government. Um, but I didn't think to myself, oh, they they pulled the trigger, literally. And they, they may have been behind this. I thought, you know, there may have been some machinations in the background and so on and so forth. Right. And those machinations are unclear. I mean, we don't really know, uh, as you pointed out earlier, we don't really know the circumstances here. Was there ever an opportunity, and this may sound a bit naive, but and and same with China, was there ever an opportunity, but India is a closer or has been a closer ally to us, or at least how we see them. Was there ever an opportunity to pull them aside quietly? I mean, you talked about don't wait for a crisis to happen. And it feels like, was there ever an opportunity earlier to pull them aside and say, listen, we're, we're well aware of this and you can't be doing this on our territory? Well, and I, I... I I still have to adhere to to the Security of Information Act, so I sure. can't say conversations that were happening. But uh, I can I can certainly say those conversations are happening with other intelligence agencies on a regular basis, and so those discussions have, have taken place. We've told the Indians uh, dial it back. The Indians have told us dial it up when it comes yes. to yes. extremists on the Canadian territory. So I, you know we'd almost gotten to the point I think, and and I haven't been in the picture in the last couple of years, but we've agreed to disagree on this. And you know, Modi, Modi uh, regularly, quasi regularly, uh, points this out. His officials pointed out. Um, the prime minister likes to say, "Listen, in a, in a in a democracy, in a Western democracy in Canada, freedom of expression. If somebody wants to talk about an independent homeland for Sikhs, Khalistan, and the Punjab, they're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. If 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 a big if if they are providing funds to terrorist organizations, if they're plotting their own terrorist acts, that's a different." kettle of fish. And, and I can tell you that, you know, if we were to, I keep on saying we, I'm, I'm, I'm retired they, now. They, yes, they, they now. They, yeah. they will pursue that. They will absolutely pursue that. If they have intelligence, they will, they will pursue that. But it's, uh, again, it's not always a smoking gun. And, and so it's, 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 it's not, it's not, um, it's not black and white. It's really, it's really not black and white, but, but your, your point about, you know, certainly it was a surprise in, in the sense that there's foreign interference and then there is foreign interference slash killing somebody on your sovereign territory. And that's foreign interference on, on steroids. I mean, this is quite, quite, quite extreme. And you made a really good point. We often talk about what would be called HASA in the government. HASA stands for hostile activities of state actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and we often refer to hostile state actors. A hostile state actor is, is somebody whose interests are inimical to ours and, and are aggressive towards us on a regular basis and who we see almost as an enemy. So that would be a China a Russia, Iran, a North Korea, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. We don't traditionally see India as a hostile state actor. Um, they are not in the Western camp per se, but they kind of got a foot in, in our camp. Uh, we've got close ties with them. Look at our diaspora community here. It's huge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But while they may not be a hostile state actor, these are certainly hostile activities by yeah. these. Well, Vincent Rigby, thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
in the 2000s, there wasn't a band on the planet that got more radio airplay than Nickelback. How You Remind Me has been considered one of America's most played songs ever. All of that exposure triggered a reaction. Why does everybody hate Nickelback? Nickelback, Nickelhack, Nickelbomb, Nickelcreed. Nobody picks up a guitar to be in the most hated band in the world. They were part of cancel culture before we had a name for it. It's kind of just like a long-running meme. They became the most hated band in music. We try and laugh it off. You can, you can laugh off about 90% of it, and some of it, it hurts. That is part of the trailer for a new documentary made, in fact, by a British duo, believe it or not, about one of Canada's most successful bands of all time. It's called Love to Hate Nickelback. And the title kind of says it all, doesn't it? Because the very mention of that band's name, at least over many years, I don't know if it's still the same, elicited some pretty strong responses, both good and often quite bad. The band, of course, from tiny Hannah, Alberta, population 3000, has been massively successful over the years, much loved and equally disliked. Why is that? It's not a question my next guests ever really actually find the answer for. Maybe there's just something irrational in it. Although over seven years, they do profile the band and learn what it's like to be in their shoes to some extent. UK radio DJ Ben Jones already knew Nickelback from having interviewed them over many years. In fact, he was apparently the first UK DJ to play How You Remind Me back in 2001. Certainly it was played many, many times after that. Lee Brooks is also from the London area. Somehow they are the ones they met up while doing some promo work for Nickelback and sort of just started making this doc. And seven years later, here we are. They are the ones who've chronicled the many ups and downs of a Canadian band. The documentary made its debut at the Toronto International Film Festival last week, where the pair was joined on stage by the band, including Chad Kroger, Ryan Peake, Mike Kroger, and Daniel Adair. Uh, They call the doc an intimate portrait of the Canadian stadium rockers' roller coaster career, from their rural roots in Alberta to becoming one of the most successful yet divisive acts in music history. It's quite quite the promo. And joining me now are director Lee Brooks and producer Ben Jones from London. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, Uh, thank you. I was watching the premiere at Roy Thompson Hall at the Toronto International Film Festival. And wow, what a place to be able to debut the film right in, you know, in in the heart of the lion, so to speak, right in Canada. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. I mean, just seeing the the actual building itself is is amazing, isn't it? It's quite, you know, it's it's standout for sure. So it was a bit of a moment when we went there at 7.30 in the morning just to do a tech preview. And it's just me, Ben, and uh, a couple of the engineers um, that were watching the film and just going, wow, we actually... Um, we're here and we're doing it. It's, not, it's no longer living in a computer in Margate, Kent, UK. <laughs> It's now back in the uh, in the motherland where it needs where it needed to be. Right. Be honest, yes, be honest. Yeah. We had a little bit of a we had a little bit of a cry, didn't we? We, we don't stop crying. We're very emotional. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I you know, I've taught, obviously worked worked in TV for a long time. Never made a doc like that, but I've, I've you know, I you live with these projects. They they kind of haunt your your dreams, right? I mean, they, you could. There's never the right time to say, okay, it's done. Okay, it's over. We're, this is it. This is this is going to be our documentary. You always think, well, maybe well, we could do some more. Yeah, well, Tiff was that was that line in the sand, mm-hmm. frankly. And you know, we would probably still be shooting it if someone <laughs> hadn't come up with the idea of. And it blows my mind even now, and it's happened that these two chances from the UK made a film about you know one of the great Canadian acts of, of all time. Um, not quite sure how we ended up there, but yet yeah, you know having to have the show having to do tiff 
was the reason to go, right, we've got to stop and we've got to backdate it from there. We've got to make sure that we've done, you know, the last bit of the editing, the grading, the sound mix and all the kind of stuff that one needs to to show a film in that incredible in that incredible environment, in that incredible location, which is, you know, Canadian rock and roll legacy. Right. And there's these two guys from from London. It was no that that part of it was great, Ben. Ben, I gather if we go back in time, you had a relationship with the band, right? I mean, you're a, you're a radio DJ, and you'd obviously really play the music. Yeah, very very platonic, no doubt. But you knew them, right? And you knew them just as a rock band long before the backlash. We'll talk about that. But you kind of just knew them as a band with a, with with some big hits who were coming on through as bands or bands do, right? Yeah, so um, you're, you're right in saying I uh, had a radio show, still have a radio show on Virgin Radio in the UK, and I was the first person to play How You Remind Me um, in 2001, I think it was, something that some of my friends haven't forgiven me for to this day, and something that some of my friends go, that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so I kind of remained in touch with the band over the years and you know, got, just got this email. Like every, every time they were over, we would catch up. Either they'd come on the radio show or we'd go for a drink or dinner. And normally, if Chad's involved, that's to drink a dinner, some dinner, some drinks, <laughs> some, some drinks, dinner, and then you wake up the next morning and it's lunchtime. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, they called me and said, look, would you be interested in doing some promo stuff around, I think it was 2017's Feed the Machine album? And I was like, yeah, would love to. Met Lee, like literally Lee and my relationship started with the starting of this. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, so like we, we right met- there. Oh, God, gotcha. Yep. We met at the airport <laughs> coming out to do the, the first thing. And oh, um, yeah, then, you know, blink and the best part of six years have gone by. It's interesting how it evolved, too, because I heard I've heard you talk about it, obviously. And, and it sort of began as just the promo. And then there was some that it sort of started to build on itself. And the next thing you know, you're in Hannah. Uh, you know, you're, it, it sort of it uh, it was never there was never sort of a you went, didn't go in with a business plan and a flow chart about <laughs> how this was going to be made right this was all quite just rock and roll so to speak yeah it was exactly how the band started you know when they uh thought we can play tunes we can write tunes let's record a couple of tunes let's do this it just evolved and before they knew it they released their first album so it did feel like it was kind of the the film version of how they started how most people start it was underground. It was it was just, you know, basically me, Ben and the DOP Lynch, uh, Richard Lynch, who, um, you know, there's no one else I would have shot that with. Um, he's incredible. And that was about it, really. There was another producer on earlier on. But apart from that, it's just been this core of bait. Well, it's just been basically me and Ben that have steered most of it home. And kudos to Ben for actually um, steering it home, because there were times, man, I was going to walk, you know, definitely. And he had to. <laughs> He had to pull, literally pull me off the ledge uh, and stuff. And uh, it's been tough. It's been a real dig into, I, I know how important this story is to a lot of people, you know, on both sides of the fence, whether they think it's important or not, it is to them. Um, and it's a big, it's a big challenge to kind of actually pull that together into, into some kind of a, a different way, you know, maybe that, that people have seen it before present it slightly differently. I think um, it's also important to the band as well yeah yeah you know telling the story was important to the band um and going back to what we were saying earlier on i don't think the band knew at the time really what we were doing we were just doing stuff we were like presenting daily just appeared yeah yeah Yeah. we were just producing by the way we're making a doc by the way yeah Yeah. and and everyone liked what they saw so they were like well just carry on 
I should mention to listeners that, that you did, of course, I mean, if someone's expecting one of those uh, one of those documentaries where you never see you sort of see the band in video clips, but you never hear from the band. This is the opposite. You sort of had, unf- well, not unfettered, perhaps fettered, but you had lots of access to the band. But I think more than more than some people, more than I thought we get, yeah. you know, that there's stuff in there that we thought to keep in um, and, that you know, I, I'm amazed and I'm, I'm so grateful to the band for having faith in it as well to go. It is important to get it to tell this side of it as well, you know, because it is a different side. You know, there's families involved. It's not just the band. They're not just the caricatures, the memes, you know, it's it's, it's a cliche, but everyone's, you know, you project one thing to the public and everything else where, you know, your, your little avatar inside here is, is something different. You know, we're all the same. Yeah. I mean, being not, I mean, I, I don't think the, the backlash, when I look at the backlash against Nickelback, it was kind of a perfect storm of timing. Social media had come up, uh, you know, the music radio stations, uh, Ben, you may remember this well, radio stations had started to be, to be programmed in a slightly different way. So you were hearing the same songs more often. I think the Nickelback just suffered from a little bit of overexposure and just this kind of media social media environment and media environment that was pretty cruel at the time right it was kind of the beginnings of that and they kind of got caught in it um but being from britain you must have been able to come at the whole issue from a slightly different lens yeah I, i'd say um the the film i did pre uh that was going in tandem with this was called sound of scars um and that's about the band life of agony and mm-hmm. uh it kind of it felt less about the music and more about the people, you know. Where obviously in this, there's a definite the first third is is all about the music and you know you get an insight to them, but it is the traditional kind of here we go, here we go, here we go. Mm. Your peaks and your troughs, and then it just goes completely sideways. I think for that next hour of like, oh, hang on, where's this going? Because mm. um, it doesn't. I think it, there is a tonal shift in the film, mm. which is uh, which is really nice in there as well. But yeah, the access was. Uh, was was amazing at points and difficult in others, would you say, Ben? I think you get to see the band um, in a way that you haven't seen them before. There is no denying that they are, you know, a well-established, successful rock band. The stats, we all know the stats, you yeah. know, and they're impressive stats. But they had never peeled back, they'd never revealed, and we live in an age now where everything, right, everyone, everyone reveals everything, whether that is artists or, you know, sports stars or you know, whatever, we're all revealing stuff on social media. And actually, when we started this project, the band didn't really do any of that. They started to own a little bit more of their narrative. Um, You didn't call it, you know, Nickelback, a journey or from Hannah to the hit parade. You you called it hate to love. So you, you do recognize that aspect of it. I suppose in some ways it makes for it makes the narrative. It gives you a narrative arc, right? Success, criticism, and then rebirth, right? I mean, I think that's essentially what you've tried to do here. And yeah. I, and, and in many ways, that that's that's kind of what's happened. People don't dislike bands forever. Every band has a renaissance, right? People stop disliking them for whatever reason they were disliked, and they go, "Well, you know, those are pretty good tunes for what for for what they are." Mm. Yeah, definitely. Is that was that? I mean, was that was that the intention? You have to acknowledge that part of their of of their existence too. And I know I know you want to put a flag in the sand, but did you ever get a hint of why what happened and the impact on the band? What uh, how it felt being in the band when that was happening at yeah, the time, and also what they were making of why it was happening. Um, I, I mean, I think they are aware that they 
sort of exploded at a moment when we all had one of these in our hands and we could all hide behind our mobile phones and people could tweet or go on Facebook and you didn't have to give your real name. I think that is the yin to the yang of the success. That is the, you know, you have to deal with that if you're going to have huge successes and you're going to be on the radio and you're going to be, you know, ubiquitous. Um, but the downside to that is after a while, okay, it's it's going to hurt. And I'm sure if it were me, you know, I do a radio show and every now and again, I'll get a text or a tweet into the studio that you probably wouldn't want to read. I'd yeah. ask if you could stop texting <laughs> and tweeting my show while I'm on the radio. But anyway, um, you know, and I think that probably hurts, right? You know, there are online forums where, you know, I can go and read about my don't, don't, don't. It's best not to go down that wormhole. I think the band opening up and actually sort of agreeing that it was okay to call this film Hate to Love just shows how they were, you know, open to exploring that part. Because could you imagine if we did a documentary about Nickelback and and didn't touch on that? It, it is then just the old sort of, you know, VH1 behind the music sort of rock doc thing that just talks about the highs. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry, Lee, go ahead. No, 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 that was it. I'm just listening to Ben on that one. I mean... There's the whole thing about the the hate and everything else is Chad, you know, hit something quite quite poignant in the interview on the red carpet where someone basically said about the hate, this and everything. He said, you've said hate eight times. <laughs> um, you said love once, you know, and there's two words in that title, you know, I mean, it's hate and love in the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, God, I, I, I'm sure... You know, there's things Chad said in the past that's got him in trouble, or you know, like everyone does. But it's it's not enough to to warrant all the hate. But it then gets projected into this other thing and this other thing and this other thing, and then they become the caricatures of the person that they are, don't they? Do you know what I mean? And it's like these big, you know, it might, that must be hard to kind of try and disassociate yourself from that. I also think one of the interesting things that we discovered, you know, while making this, while talking to people on the streets, you know, going into Vancouver, going down to Town and asking people, you know, sticking a microphone in people's faces and going, why do you think people hate Nickelback? They actually don't. I can honestly say, hand on my heart, while making this entire program, you know, while making this film over the last six years, no one was able to give me a definitive answer as to why they hated Nickelback. And you know what the honest answer is? I'm not entirely sure they do. I'm not entirely, and, and and if they do, who hates a band that much, right? Here's the thing. If you don't like something, turn it off. I don't like Marmite, so I don't eat it. <laughs> that's, that's a good example. I mean, you know, the the, the 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 music world is now cluttered with bands who at some point were disliked. I'm, I'm forever, I mean, it's I had no, pro- I had no problem with, with Rick Astley in 1986 or 87, rather. <laughs> but it's amazing what a resurrection his reputation has had yep. over the years. I mean, there, there is hope for Nickelback. I think it's just, I mean, uh, obviously, I think that it's already happened. You've seen it happen. You saw it happen on the road. They have new fans and they found new audiences and they kind of judoed the hatred into something else to make fun of it, right? Which, which in fact, was probably the best approach to begin with. Totally, totally. Ben and Lee, congratulations, Lee and Ben. Congratulations on this. I'm after all those years. You're also not only a part of the band, but now, of course, you know your honorary Canadians as well. So, welcome. yes. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have to say, we've had some amazing times, whether it was in Vancouver, which actually feels a little bit like the UK, mainly because it's raining most of the time. Um, you know, going to Hannah was just stunning, stunning, stunning. And, you know, what a reception we had in Toronto. I have had some of the best times of my life in Canada. So to your Canadian listeners, thank you for uh, showing us your amazing country and letting us hang out in your in your amazing place. We had a blast. Thank you. Definitely. We sure did. Wow, 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 wow.
Well, you'll remember perhaps, oh, nary yesterday, Danielle Smith announced the province, Alberta, will pursue a plan to leave the Canada Pension Plan. That's all been propelled by this report that uh, they commissioned more than three years ago. In fact, Jason Kenney commissioned it. Uh, but it seems to show, paint a very rosy picture of what Alberta could do if it left the Canada Pension Plan and went to loan. And guess what? Today, thanks to you taxpayers in Alberta, you've already got an ad paid for by you to convince you that this is a good idea. Have a listen. Alberta's government is exploring an Alberta pension plan. The new plan could mean higher benefits for seniors and bigger paychecks for workers. It's your pension, your choice. Learn more and have your say at albertapensionplan.ca. Yeah, they slide they slide that little cell in there, right? It's not like, hey, go find out more. We're going to vote on this. It's more like, this is a really good idea, by the way. Uh, Keith Ambekshire is one of the world's foremost experts on these things, on institutional investing and pension funds. Uh, I thought we would ask him about it, but let's give you some background again. There's this report that came out that was released yesterday, was again commissioned years ago, as I said, and it showed or says that Alberta is entitled to a whopping $334 billion from the national program, from the Canada Pension Fund, should it begin the three-year process of withdrawing next year to go it alone. Now, that's more than half of the $575 billion that the fund currently has in assets under management. How could a province that only represents 10% of the Canadian population walk away with more than half of the assets, our assets, by the way? these are This is our retirement money, by the way. How would they do that? How does that work? Well, here's Danielle Smith yesterday. I believe that an Alberta pension plan would be fairer and could make life more affordable for all Albertans. It could bring more benefits for seniors, higher take-home pay for workers, and strengthen the Alberta advantage to attract business. I believe it's the right decision for our province. But I also believe in making sure that every Albertan has their say. Right. So then you launch an ad campaign, basically selling the thing. Most people go to referendum not knowing exactly what it's about. It's about other grievances and so on. And what you know what's happening here at the end of all this is that it's your retirement money that they're playing with. They're playing politics with your retirement money. Imagine that. Here's, here's, I grew up in Quebec, so I know exactly of what I speak. And a lot of what the UCP do reminds me so much of the Parti Québécois. Never give ideologues your money. Just never let ideologues touch your money. Because they don't care about your money. They care about their ideas. I, when I invest my money, I want it to be with someone who has no politics at all. None. I don't want to know their politics. Just make sure the returns work. That's what I want to know. Uh, there's been, you know, this is quite the divorce settlement, $334 billion of $575 billion. So CPP's investment board, they had someone saying already yesterday, listen, this is impossible. And it's based on an invented formula. So don't listen to what's being said. So how does the math work out? Again, Keith Ambekshire is one of the world's most respected authorities on institutional investing in pension funds. And we thought we'd ask him because he's been looking into this. He's an executive in residence and adjunct professor of finance at the Rotman School of Business at U of T. And he's been named one of the 30 most influential people in pensions by pensions and investments in the USA. So clearly he knows what he's talking about. Keith, thank you so much for this one. My pleasure. We were just talking about, I mean, we we started talking about this, the this number, this $334 billion uh, that Alberta, that this report, I shouldn't say Alberta, that this report seems to indicate that Alberta would be, you know, entitled, is entitled the right word? Entitled to if they were to go off on their own with, a, with an APP well, it, and leave yeah. the CPP. That's, you know, that's more than half the fund. That is a lot of money. Right, right. So... Uh, some of us have known this was coming for some time. 
but it, it, it still, when it, the, the report came out, and it's, it is kind of interesting, this isn't Alberta saying this, this is this report saying this uh, by LifeWorks, uh, you know, actual consulting firm. Um, and so the, the pondering is that, you know, the first reaction is, well, you know, this, this is a stupid number. Uh, you know, how could they come up with this? And I've been kind of digging away into <laughs> trying to answer that question. And what they've done is to redefine a uh, formula that was put together at the beginning of the creation of the CPP way back in the mid-1960s. And it was meant to deal with, at that time, you know, the plan was, it wasn't being pre-funded. Uh, it was just uh, enough money to actually flow through and pay out as, as pensions. And then over time, uh, the contributions got larger and larger and the pension payouts got larger and larger. So it's called pay as you go. It, mm -hmm. It's not the idea of pre-funding and creating a fund and then paying the benefits out of a, out of a fund. Yeah, it's a very so, different beast, right? It's a very different beast in 2023 than it was in the mid-60s. Yeah, you have the very investment board thing. and everything, of course. And then in the 1990s is when uh, the collective decision was made to change the arrangement of the CPP and to start partially pre-funding it. And you may recall, people may recall that it basically doubled the contribution rate right. from 5.95 uh, to uh, uh, 9.9%. Right. Uh, so that created a huge cash flow, additional cash flow, and it it led to the building up of the fund, which is now uh, you know the number we're currently using is something like five five hundred seventy billion. Uh, yes, Dollars, yeah. it's a lot of money. It's a, that's, a, that's a big fund for my Canadian standards. It's, a big it's fund, the biggest, biggest been, fund. Yeah. You know, the reason it's it's so big now is that. The investment performance has been very good, you know, partially because it, it's actually a, a great organization, but also par partially because the financial markets have just been very friendly over the last 20, 30 years, more than not. So, you know, the return, I mean, the last, I think the ten, last 10 year return is like 10%. Well, yeah. that's, a, that's a big number. So that's how it got to be a big fund. And now here we're with this question where there's this report were uh, according to the report, over half of that money would go to Alberta if they basically withdrew and you know set up their own arrangement. So I, I've got the makings of an op-ed piece for that, but let me sort of share what you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So, um, so I wrote about this this idea of four uh, three years ago, you know, when it was first sort of put into the public domain, the separation of CPP into APP, and I I said not a good idea. For a number of reasons, you know, you lose risk pooling you know, around sort of economics, mortality. Uh, you've got portability issues between Alberta, other provinces. Uh, you've got implementation risk. It, you know, it's no mean feat to set up a pension plan uh, from scratch. And then the other question is, you know, if Alberta, the government of Alberta got the money, what would they do with it? <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, that is certainly CPP. I mean, if people, listeners don't know, the CPP is very much a non-political organization, to right. despite what you may hear, uh, you know, CDPQ in Quebec isn't, and it's been that way since its inception. Right. Of course, Quebec didn't join the CPP, but it's pretty clear from what Alberta's been talking about, at least politically, that polit politics does play a role here. There's certainly politics of this idea that, right. that somehow this money isn't being spent the way Alberta would like to see it right. invested. So, you know, yeah. So that was three years ago. And then uh, the, the idea went quiet, and now it's it's back on. And what's new, you know, is this uh, 
300 billion plus number that uh, apparently Alberta uh, would get out of the fund in order to start start their own. And if they could actually do that, it would be actually a pretty good deal for Albertans to do that. And and the thing is, I think it's going to happen. It shouldn't happen. And the question is, you know, where did the number come from? And yeah. I think that I haven't really seen discussed yet. Best I can figure it out, sub, subject to talking to a few actuaries, which I haven't done yet. I don't want myself. I think I know roughly what they do, but it's basically a generational thing. It's a demographic thing because what they ended up doing, this is now they being LifeWorks, what they ended up doing, uh, my understanding of it was to say, uh, uh, to to create the formula that roughly is contributions in uh, minus benefit payments out uh, minus some cost number, right? And, and, so the net of all that, you know, and, time, and Alberta has a young population, so of course well, there's more contributors the than the beneficiaries, that, right? Yeah, I mean, that makes what sense. you embed into that formula is that it's basically a thing where you know the younger people in the plan are still um, you know putting money in, not taking money out. Um, older people are taking money out, not putting money in. And then if you, and the principle of the thing is that you know, treat all Canadians equally. And what that means is that you know, at, at some point, we're all young at one point and eventually we age and we become old. Uh, and, and so your relationship with the CPP changes on an age related basis. So if you now arbitrarily, you know, draw a line and, and at a point in time, say uh, we're going to wind this thing up. Uh, what you do end up with, and then you do the calculations of how do we do, split the pot? It, it's obviously, uh, you know, the, the young, <laughs> younger people are in a position where they're putting the money in, and the older are, are taking their money out. So right. on a provincial basis, you have younger, you know, a younger population in one part and an older population in another part. It's basically in a windup is that you know the younger people end up with most of the money. <laughs> well, and and in this and this would be approximately how they came up with this number. But Keith, how important is this amount of money? Because I, it seems to me that the amount of money to launch an Alberta pension plan would be very, very critical to the kinds of promises they're making about the benefits of an Alberta pension yes. plan. So you start yeah. off with three hundred fifty billion. That is a whole different ball game than starting off with one hundred and fifty billion. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Uh, if you do the math on this. Uh, and you sort of forget the, you know, the principles behind you know, what's fair and what's not fair. Uh, this is a good deal for Albertans in, in the sense that, uh, you know, they get this pile of money and they'd be able to afford paying pensions at, you know, sort of a, a lower contribution rate than uh, the rest of the population. I mean, that's just simple math. The, the question is around, you know, what's fair and uh, that's where I think the the discussion ultimately is going to go, and it's going to go to uh, you know this LifeWorks calculation of the numbers and what they and I haven't gone totally through the report, but by doing the calculation the way that they did it, they're effectively you know breaking the fundamental principle underlying the cpp is that all canadians are equal <laughs> right so in other words in, in they that, should get that yes you are in a different position if you're young yeah. than if you're old but you know the deal is the same for everybody 
ten percent of the population, ten percent of the fund. Uh, there you yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> That's which would which would seem exactly. to be. I think the rest of Canada might. I mean, outside of Quebec, would seem to would probably agree with that. Uh, Keith, when you when you look at what when this could be. I mean, I know this is going to end up being a big drawn out fight. If it were, if you know, mm-hmm. there's going to be a referendum. If the people of Alberta vote to sort of push this forward, it's going to turn into quite the divorce. Um, what kind of impact would it have on CPP? Regardless, even if it's three hundred and thirty-five billion or one hundred and fifty billion, it feels like it could get a bit messy for for the rest of us too. All the others who pay into it in this country, the the, the transition would be horrendous, uh, both on the asset side, as to uh, you know what do you hand over? Do you hand over cash? Right. <laughs> you hand over or half the portfolio the way it's created. Private equity. <laughs> I mean, like, what do you hand over? Yeah. Yeah, and who do you hand it over to? <laughs> And, and that's just the that's just the asset side. Um, I'm involved uh, in some of the discussion going on in the Netherlands, where they're for different reasons changing the basics of the, of their pensions to move away from kind of a mark to market solvency approach to a much more sort of a uh, defined contribution approach. And they're now talking about how you go from one system to the other. <laughs> And again, there it would involve taking you know, billions of euros in collective pension plans and individualizing it. And again, predictably, uh, they're running into all kinds of problems of how the heck do you do the valuation? Right. And it's amicable, right? That's amicable. Well, well or sort of, <laughs> sort of, yes. It's more amicable uh, this than this would be. But but again, there there is going to be a, an issue of you know the young versus the old, and what's fair. And it's really, you know, once you've run a system in a certain way for a long time, it's really difficult to come up with an answer to the what's fair question. You're, you're much better to, you know, let it up, uh, let it go as to what exists. And if you want to start something, start new from, you know, from ground zero. Right. And, and so we've got the same thing here, uh, not just on the on the asset side, but we have the same thing on the liability side, of course, of, you know, trying to figure out as to, you know, what... <laughs> what a new plan, what would be owed to, uh, or how you would define the benefits for people inside Alberta. The other major thing that comes into play here is that the the reason why you're getting these numbers now is because of the age difference between, uh, you know, Albertans and and some of the other provinces, Maritimes, uh, for example. But that's now, (laughs) That's yeah. Tell, that, that tell me about exactly what yeah. things it'll look like. You know, ten years from now, twenty years from now, none of us know for sure. Keith, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Okay.